1: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Tay Abdurrahman. Tay is a black Muslim thought leader, educator, prison abolitionist, and author of the recently released book, American Imam, From Pop Stardom to Prison Abolition. You can get connected with Tay and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, the easiest way to support the podcast is if you gave it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, it would make my day if you would support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with great rewards, including papers I write and even being listed as a producer. Please enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I've got Tay Abdur-Rahman with me. Uh, And Tay, you do a lot of things in the world, including you're a black Muslim thought leader. Uh, You're a social entrepreneur, educator, and prison abolitionist, which we'll dive into quite a bit. But you're also a recent author of the book American Imam, From Pop Stardom to Prison Abolition. Uh, What a story. What a journey for you. But uh, looking forward to chatting more about the book, about um, just kind of your perspective as a Muslim in the world, uh, talking about prison abolition. So we'll dive into all of that. But uh, before we get into that, uh, who is Tay Abdur Rahman to Tay Abdur Rahman?
0: Oh, man. Great. So thank you for that that gracious introduction, my brother. Um, Who am I to me? I am just a kid from Roxbury, a ghetto in Boston who has been favored and blessed by God in so many different ways i had some like wildly changing fortunes and i'm just for me i feel like i am what is possible now that that's not to say i've arrived or that i'm someone special but but i do say like my life is a demonstration that god can do whatever he wants to do Tay, do you want to talk a
1: little bit about your journey you have a Fascinating journey, obviously, you dive into it in in the book, but yeah, can you talk a little bit about some of those early years in your life where yeah you were you were singing and you were you were doing the whole music career for a hot second, yeah. and then life completely changed. so can you talk a little bit about uh that journey
0: yeah, i mean i um I started out in about nineteen eighty five at the age of nine or ten as a rapper in a rap group. I was discovered by Maury Starr, who was at the time super famous producer who had uh, new kids on the block, new edition, wow. famous groups from the eighties and nineties. So he snatched me up and six months after he snatched me up. I had a, a number one record on billboard pop 100, um, with the song Ooh La La. We went on tour with the new kids on the block in 1989 and stayed on tour with them until 1993. So we toured wow. like three and a half years, constantly performing in stadiums. 60,000 people, 20,000 people. Um, Jeez. We appeared on Oprah Winfrey on the cover of Golden Grams. And so within the span of three years, Mason, it became like a whirlwind where I kind of got disconnected from reality. You know, mm. as, as you can imagine, being a 13-year-old kid at the time. And that caused me a lot of trauma when I touched back down in Boston. So, yeah, it became, it became a situation where it's like, oh, man, this is going to be a, this is going to be a cautionary tale. You know, this is not so going to did end. Did you well. come back to
1: Boston when you were around like 17 then?
0: Yeah, I came back when I was 17. Wow. I mean, and... like
1: the difference between like a 13 year old and a 17 year old is like an entire lifetime, it feels like. So yeah, that, that and... is unbelievable. That Those specific years where you're you're probably a totally different person from the time that you started to the time that you got back to Boston.
0: That's a great observation. I mean, I think I never looked at it like that but the difference between 13 and 17 just four years but it's like you said it's the world apart so yeah i came back and feeling like a young adult testosterone all over the place and now i was famous didn't have any money going back to the same neighborhood i thought i escaped from and i had to be careful not to become a victim right because Mm -hmm. that environment that really aggressive environment people see you on tv you get on the bus, they want to start singing the song. Ooh, la, la. So it was a lot of um, possibilities for me to become a victim. So that made me get a little aggressive to try to protect myself. You know. So mm-hmm. I had to put on this like false facade for years. And then it kind of grew into who I was until I snapped out of it.
1: How did you get, uh, like from that 17-year-old self, how did you then get involved in Islam?
0: Right. Well, I had been running with some serious people who were connected with Dr. Dre. And so I ended up going out there to be a ghostwriter for him for like a month or a month and a half Mm -hmm. or something. And when I got up and close, this was nothing, this is no disrespect to Dre. It had nothing to do with Dre. Dre was a a gracious host. But when you got, when I got up and close and personal with that environment, it just felt despicable to me, the music business, not, not his environment, just the music business. And I felt like, you know what? I'm 20, I was 23 at the time. And I just felt like, "Nah, you know what? I'm all set. I've been there, done that." And when I got home, I was fighting for custody for my son. Um so I was in court. I didn't really have any education at that point. I didn't have anything to fall back on. I had just been a singer and a dancer and a rapper. And so my life was kind of flashing before me. I had some skirmishes in the streets, had been arrested a few times just doing drugs every day, selling drugs. And I had a moment um, where you know, one of my friends, one of my dear friends, his name was Apple, he went to prison and in prison, he rediscovered Islam of his childhood. And so he would call me and try to tell me about how great Islam is and how it could change my life. But at the time I was saying, man, when you come back, we're going to the strip club. We're not, we're not thinking about Islam. So I had a, a revelation one night um, on my 24th birthday we came back from the nightclub, was drinking, smoking. The police had, had surrounded our car. And I saw my whole life flash before me. And it was really like an out-of-body experience. I ran home, dropped in my mother's arms, cried, asked her to forgive me, begged that God would forgive me. And I'm telling you, Mason, I swear to God, that night I went to bed, I woke up a new person. God mm-hmm. had changed me overnight. And so um, after that, I basically, I wasn't Muslim, but I went to some churches for some friends that I knew, through some friends that I knew, and I wanted to get up and be saved, but it didn't feel comfortable for me. It didn't feel right for me. And um, my friend who was in prison told me where to find a mosque in Boston. I went there, became Muslim, rest is history.
1: Wow. So, you know, I've heard of these sort of stories, conversion stories if you will, from other yeah. people. And some of them, right, there are people who convert to Christianity, you know, they they yeah. live, you know, they have this tough life and then all of a sudden they have this powerful experience. M- many of whom did not have maybe a prior experience to Christianity and all of a sudden they feel like they maybe met Jesus or something and all of yes. a sudden they convert. It's interesting that for you, it was Islam, uh, and I just find that to be, you know, interesting. And, and, you know, maybe a lot of it had to do with with your friend who had, it sounds like, was already maybe a part of Islam. Uh, but it's just really interesting how different people will have these very similar kind of conversion experiences, but the, the sort of end result or the religion that they maybe go into or the spirituality that they find themselves in could be
0: very different. That's a fact. And I think, you know, when I said I went to some churches, the morning I was changed, the morning after that following week, I went to church during the week. And it was exactly that, Mason. It was my friend, Daryl, who had been tough kid, fighter. And he was like a mean kid, quiet. And this when we were younger. And by, by the time he was 20, he had become reborn, saved by Jesus. And I watched this guy literally go from being this tough, quiet kid to being like this outgoing, bright, smiling, energetic, you know, just this really compassionate person. And this was because, you know, according to him, because of Jesus. And so for me, I called him up. I said, yo, Daryl, man, you got to take me to church. I want that. And so he took me to his church and they played, they were playing the instruments and stuff. And I sat there and it was nice and it was pleasant, but my heart wasn't moved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're not Muslim, you'll say that's because God didn't want to save you. But if you are Muslim, you would say, that's because God wanted you to find what was right for you. Mm. And so I think that what that taught me in retrospect is that you know everyone is drawing off of their lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone is is finding what works for them, their sentiment, their disposition, the energy they put out in the world. And I think for me, Islam had been chasing me my whole life. My middle school teacher, Mrs. Bilal, she was Muslim. She used to give us talks about Islam our tour manager when i was on tour with the perfect gentleman he was muslim and then mm-hmm. my best friend was muslim come to find out so i think that um it told me that it taught me that you know everyone has something for them whether we like it or not 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 one religion is not going to be for everyone you know people mm-hmm. are just too varied and different and that we should make space for everyone
2: yeah
1: had you grown up with any kind of religion uh yeah. prior to your conversion
0: no, my mom, God bless her, she's a wonderful woman, and she was a great mom. I grew up I grew up um, in a single household with my mom and dad actually had been divorced <clears throat> when I was four or five, grew up with siblings. And my mom was very, very skeptical of any organized religion. Mm. She used to tell us, you know, God is not always in church. You know, God is where you want him to be. You can't, you can't, you go to church and you find the worst people there. She used to say those kind of things, not because she had something against Christians, but it's because the black church is one of the m- most integral things in the black community. So mm-hmm. she used to always say to us, you know, God is not always in the church or God is not in the building, you know. Um, but she taught us to believe in God, but no religious belief. On mm-hmm. Easter, we used to get dressed in our best Easter clothes and then wait outside for everyone to come home from church so they can see us dressed up in our cool clothes. So yeah, that was mm-hmm. exciting. You,
1: you said during this conversion experience, you, you went to church the following Sunday and you had that experience, yes. uh, but obviously you landed in Islam. And I'm curious, what was it that intrigued you about islam when you first converted what maybe it was to the community maybe there was some sort of theology to islam that you really like but i'm really curious like there must have been some reason why you were compelled by that versus going to this church on a sunday
0: four things and, I, and and wallahi wallahi means i swear to god i'm thinking of these four things right now i've never said these four things in succession until right this minute number one you know when Black, and I'm going to go a little off off to answer your question, but you know when a white police officer pulls a white person over, they're not as threatened because they have white relatives, right? This person mm-hmm. may look like their uncle, their cousin, their brother. And so there's a familiarity there, even if there's no intimacy there. They they have mm-hmm. a familiar, they understand what this person is probably like. hmm when they pull a black person over, not so much. They they maybe only have images from what's on TV and movies and media. Here's my point: the reason why Islam was so accessible to me is because it felt really familiar to me. Mm. You know, uh, it felt really familiar because it had been around me since I was a kid. You know, my aunt was Muslim. Um, my auntie Judy was Muslim, and you know. The Nation of Islam was in my neighborhood. I'm not Nation of Islam, but they were in my neighborhood, the guys with the suits and the bow ties. So the idea that I, if I was to be religious, it would have been that. That's number one, because mm-hmm. it was just really familiar. Number two, Malcolm X was Muslim, and he is a hero in the Black community. I don't care mm-hmm. where you're from, you love Malcolm X. And I aspired to have his principles and his value system, and I think he drew on Islam to build his value system. So that was a huge influence on me number 3 hip hop and i actually write about this in the first chapter of my book islam had became hip hop's religion right you had in the mm-hmm. 80s big daddy Kane, rockem um x clan a lot of these famous hip hop acts who were speaking they were saying assalamu alaikum in their raps or you know praise to allah so that had a f- that branding so to speak had a f- huge influence on all of us mm-hmm. and then finally When I went into the mosque after going into church the week before, I saw something I had never saw before. I saw some white Muslims. I saw some Muslims in doctor scrubs. Some people who were getting out of cabs going up and going up into the mosque with me. And there were two or three guys with holes in their socks. And they were all lined up praying together, white, African, Black. And I felt like, wow, like. All these different people from different walks of life praying, bowing down. It just felt so surreal using the entire bodies to worship God, Mm. not having to worry about getting dressed up. Some of them had holes in their socks. I said, man, those are the really holy socks, so to speak. So I think those factors created a perfect storm for me.
1: That's interesting that it was yeah that the familiarity with different people in your life and and prior to your conversion even um that you were just like oh like that person's Muslim and then it just becomes kind of natural like oh makes sense for me too exactly uh, and then also that embody experience of of using your whole body in worship and in prayer and reverence and in sacredness uh, that 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 is. Such a key factor. I think I actually wrote my my master's thesis on um, the embodiment of spirituality, and so uh, mm, th- it's mm. always it's always great to hear that kind of confirmed, even from people that come from different religious yes, traditions indeed. as myself. Uh, so those are the reasons why you were first intrigued to be become muslim can you talk about like what what keeps you now maybe they're the same exact reasons maybe there's different reasons now but like what keeps you wanting to be a part of this religion this uh this kind of community
0: yeah that's that's a great question i would like to also one give you one caveat is that the christians there was a church an elliott church at the bottom of my street they used to take us after school and practice the social gospel on us. Like they used to take mm. us young kids after school and t- tutor us, give us juice boxes and chips. They were doing their job in the community. But I just think at that moment in the late 80s, early 90s, Islam had the better branding. That's all it was. <laughs> but in terms of what keeps me now, belief in God. Mm. You know, believe it, belief in in God as I as I know him to be, which is uh, unique, alone, single, all-powerful. And i just think islam the word itself is a verbal noun so to speak right it is mm-hmm. it is a it is an action as opposed to like the different faiths you know i think uh christianity and islam we believe that christianity and judaism are, are the abrahamic faiths they come from abraham and they have a revi- revealed book that that is from god the mm-hmm. bible uh the the gospel and the testament the old testament are from god we believe that but we believe that these names like say for instance Judaism comes from the tribe of Judah. Christianity comes from Christ. They are named after men. And Islam is a noun that means to submit, is a verbal noun that means to submit. Little Learning nuances like that, learning about the unicity of God, that God is one alone. The prayers, the daily prayers. I think that it's not one thing. I think it's, you know, when you become enthralled with an idea, it's not that you should master it, but it should master you. And mm-hmm. I think that I'm at the point now where Islam has kind of mastered my life. And also when you start to see miracles, right? And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that only Muslims in Islam has miracles, but when you start to see intimate things happen to you that you know that only God could change this circumstance, only God could make this happen, then it confirms this is the right path for me. So mm-hmm. I mean, 24 years I've been on that journey of learning about myself, learning about God, and witnessing his miracles in my life and in the lives of others, that makes me say, yeah, I mean, he he took me out of the gutter and gave me a value system. I've I've slipped up, you know, I'm I'm not perfect, I'm a human. I make mistakes every day, but this value system is self-correcting, right? It always gets me back to where I need to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would rather. I don't know what I would rather do, but I, I mean, Islam is my life. Islam is my lifeblood, is my existence, is my very being. Without mm-hmm. it, I'm nothing. Mm-hmm.
1: So you, you've talked a little bit about kind of that conversion um, experience, and then obviously what has kept you, uh, you know, kept you a part of Islam. There are a lot of people who have different conversion experiences, and uh, you know, certainly yeah. maybe even to Islam, and they you know, they just kind of go about their day, you know, or, you know, they continue kind of, you know, maybe a a very different life, but you know, they, they're not uh, to a point where they're like, I want to become an imam. but you, you know, you got to a point where you weren't just like, Oh, I want to, you know, remain like a person doing whatever normal job stuff there is to do. And then just go to mosque, you know, every day or whatever, like, like a lot of people do, right. For you, you're like, no, no, I'm so invested in this. I want Mm. to like, I want to be somebody who helps other people experience this religion. And so can you talk a little bit about what got you to that point where you're like, I want to be so invested. Like I actually do this as like part of my vocation or professionally.
0: I'll tell you, Mason, great question. I wanted to be a rapper. I wanted to be on a yacht in Miami. I did not want to be a Muslim leader. I didn't want to be in the limelight. This was for lack of a better term, I was compelled to be Muslim, I had no choice, I believe, you know, like, Mm. my life was headed down a path where this was the only option for me. And I attributed to God's care and concern for me. Now, to answer your question, how I became and you know, what was my kind of ethos behind it? I've always been a good student, um, not the smartest kid in the class by far, but always been interested in reading stories and narratives Mm -hmm. and asking why, you know, one time, I got in a fight uh, at school and I ended up, uh, I had assault and battery on a police officer there. So I, I got arrested. I had to go to court and in court, the police officer that I assaulted, he wrote me a letter for to the judge. And he said to the judge, this kid is one of the only kids out of hundreds who says good morning to me every day. <laughs> and I don't think he should be punished for one indiscretion. So the judge let me off, continue without a finding. When we left court out, I was 17 years old at the time. My mother said, Tyrone, my name was Tyrone. She said, you see, when you're a gentleman, it pays off in ways you would never understand. And that's who Mm -hmm. you really are. And that always played out in my mind. And so when I became Muslim, naturally, I, I was hearing so many different opinions about do it this way. Pray this way. You know, when you do that, read it this way. So I said, man, let me pick up the books myself. So I just began my own personal study. And when God wants something for you, as you know, Mason, he opens up the gates. He opens up the door for you. So I began a personal study. I got an offer to go study in Egypt at first, but they said I couldn't bring my wife with me. So I couldn't, I would I didn't want to go. And then I got an offer to study in Saudi through a, a tele, tele-linked program where they would, the scholars would actually call weekly. We would take the courses and then we went there. We would go there for our final exams. So that was I was a young adult I was had I was married with children it just made more sense for me. But again still I'm not thinking leader I'm just thinking I'm trying to edify myself so I can know how to do things properly in this life. When I returned back from Saudi after taking my final exams my father-in-law who was a prison chaplain he said, "Hey, would you have you ever thought about prison chaplaincy?" At the time I was working in a warehouse for Harvard University picking books and shipping shipping them out. I said I haven't. He said you should try it. So I volunteered I liked it. I loved it. I was a mm-hmm. good teacher. I connected with the men, and that is what opened up the the gates for me. And then people just start calling you imam, and then before you know it, they start coming to you for advice. They start coming to you for coming to you for theological questions, counseling, jurisprudence questions, and God just puts you in a position where he's he's qualified you. So I don't really, mm-hmm. I didn't do it intentionally. It just came about.
1: This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. What's the process of of becoming an imam? Uh, I like, you know, I I come from the the Christian tradition. I actually work for a seminary. And so, you know, we're working with a variety of different uh, traditions. But a lot of people, you know, they have to like go on to get like a master of divinity and then maybe they get ordained after that or whatever. But I'm curious, like what what's the process like to become an imam? Is it is it varied depending on like a particular kind of mosque or I mean, I'm just really curious, like what that
0: process looks like? Yeah, that's it. That's that's important. There's no I tell you what, there's no codified process. And this okay. is where you get this is where you get extremes like you get, for instance, one out of a billion people like Osama bin Laden, who people thought he was like a religious scholar or someone with knowledge. He was just a spoiled rich kid who was able to manipulate people to do what he wanted them to do. And because of his long beard and his clothes, people thought he was a sheikh or a scholar or something, but he was just a regular guy no Islamic knowledge. So there's nothing that's codified within Islam. And I'll tell you what that means. That means that every year there are hundreds of students graduating from Islamic schools, universities, madrasas, all over the world. And out of those hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands probably, graduating every year, you have a dozen or so who actually become imams. So how do they become Mm -hmm. imams? It is a disposition and and implementation of the knowledge they have Mm. that people ended up end up calling them imam. There's no formal ceremony. There's no stamp. There's no, okay, I have the knowledge. Now I have to take a two year imams course. No. Mm. Once you have some kind of information and knowledge and people see you as a leader, they just address you as imam. Mm. And it's really a strange thing who gets anointed and who doesn't. You know uh, some, for some people, it's a severe test because they're not qualified or they exploit the position, and for other people it's a reward you know because mm-hmm. of their hard work and their dedication and sincerity and I've mm-hmm. seen both types. I just hope that for me it is an expiation for me and you know um, a way to kind of cleanse my slate and 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 make make my ends meet when I meet God
1: you talked about how you went to Saudi Arabia to to study and you know again from the christian tradition theology is a very important aspect to the christian faith and and thinking sure. through uh you know the christian faith i know to a certain degree certainly that's an important part of islam as well can you talk through a little bit about maybe some of the the theology that, uh, of Islam or the kind of the version of Islam that you're in, if you will, that, that has intrigued you or compelled you. You know, I remember um, years ago when I was in seminary, I read, uh, I forget who the author was, but it was like Islamic liberation theology. And I'm very involved in the liberation theology world. Yes. And, and so I remember reading like this Muslim perspective of it. So I'm just curious, like, is there a certain kind of like theology coming from like the Muslim perspective that has intrigued you or compelled you or inspired you? Um, but I'm really curious just from like the theological side of things, like h- how you, um, kind of think through things and what, um, you know, what, what are the theologies out there from Islam that you want to bring out, uh, and share with
0: others? Yes. a Great question. Thank you. And it's funny, man. Thank you, Mason, because these questions are really academic and intellectual and thoughtful, not just the questions about me being on stage. So I really appreciate it. Right. Um, so I mean Islam, I, I mean I'm
1: I'm sure the stuff on stage is is a, a cool. great story. I'm
0: cool. way less interested in that to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in Islam we have a statement uh, in Islam uh, theology is 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 the creed is called aqida. And an uh, aqida comes from the word aqt in Arabic. Aqt is okay. a is a knot. It's a knot. When you tie a knot that knot is called an aqt. A contract is called an aqt cuz it's mm-hmm. binding. So aqida is that binding belief right? That binding belief. So the basis of the Muslim's theology is a statement I'm going to say in Arabic and translate it. And what that means is, number one, to submit to God by making him one, right? The first tenet is to submit to God by making him one. Al istislam li ta'whid comes from the word wahid, which means one. So that means that Jesus is not, while we believe he is a great prophet, he's not the son of God. God has no partners, no wives, no children. He's one, that's the most important part of our theology. And to comply with what he has made permissible, what he has commanded to do, and to refrain from what he has prohibited. So that means to pray five times a day, to not eat certain things, to not drink alcohol, to not lie, cheat, steal. <inaudible> and to separate yourself from polytheism and its people. So that means that the Muslims should be distinct in the way that they carry themselves. They shouldn't participate in uh, polytheistic festivals and occasions and events, mm. and that they should try to really distinguish themselves as monotheists. So this is the basis of the belief. Now, with that said, my actual, my doctoral dissertation is, is something called restorative Islamic theology. And what it is, is it takes this general umbrella of theology that I just told you, which is true in, in Islamic context, but restorative Islamic theology basically centers, instead of centering rote ritual, which is, which is what happens with Islamic jurisprudence, is basically do this, don't question it, don't ask why, I just do this. Restorative Islamic theology, it centers the human being in the narrative Mm -hmm. of religion. It centers centers their social context, their emotional needs. And this came out of me spending 10 years as a chaplain in the prison system, spending Mm -hmm. two years as a chaplain at Harvard University, spending two years as a chaplain at Northeastern University, and seeing that both ends of the spectrum, criminals, those convicted of crimes for murder and rape to those who are at the highest echelons of academia at Harvard, they are suffering from the same problems. Mm. Uncertainty, neuroticism, doubt, insecurity, fear, anxiety, depression, same stuff. So what restorative Islamic theology says, it prescribes what is needed for the individual, right? What does this person need individually? So my thesis is basically on stripping away all of the dogma, right? You have to have these five principles. If you don't believe in these five principles, you've left Islam, right? Or if you don't do these 10 things, you're no longer Muslim. What it does is it say, no, you're Muslim because you said you're Muslim. Now tell me what you believe and how you believe it. And tell me, let's hear about your narrative, about your life story. Who hurt you? How did they hurt you? How can we use Islam to restore your faith in humanity to restore your your inclination to do good and do right. So that's basically what my I believe my life work my life's work is uh this restorative Islamic theology.
1: You know, obviously there's a lot of parallels to Christianity and, and Christian theologies uh to, to that. You know the for example, again, I, I'm very involved in like the liberation theology world, and one of the things that liberation theology tries to stress is, you know, there there are different people groups, and they experience certain kinds of oppression, and so when when they do theology, they're going to obviously do theology from their perspective as an oppressed people group. Uh, whereas you get, and then you get Christians, obviously, that push back against that. And normally those Christians, uh, they might not realize it or they might not want to accept this, but they're doing their theology from like a white supremacist perspective or from like mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. homophobic perspective yes. or a uh, a patriarchal perspective. Whereas obviously liberation theology is, is doing this theology from, an oppressed person's uh, perspective or oppressed people group perspective. And so it sounds like very similar to kind of a liberation theology approach yeah. uh, that, that you're proposing of trying to understand like what is what are these individuals, what are these people groups uh, experiencing and like how can we think through, for, obviously for your perspective, like Islamic theology from that. And uh, I, I think that's just like so incredibly helpful to think through theology in those ways. Um, and I'm glad to know that obviously, that there are a number of Muslims that are doing that similar kind of work um, uh, in the world.
0: Thank you, Mason. And I'll say this. I can't can't say that you are incorrect, and I'll tell you why. I studied Christian Liberation Theology for my graduate degree, my master's degree at Andover Newton Theological School, Mm -hmm. Christian Seminary. Great professors there who actually I didn't have any respect for Christianity in a really a theological way because I didn't understand it. Just like many people don't have respect for, for Islam unless you really go in and understand how it works. Mm-hmm. And they were able to like draw out the beautiful nuance in it and draw out the original objectives of Christianity in terms of uh, the social gospel and in terms of the theocentric object for the poor mm-hmm. and all of these different kind of really pro-human, really progressive and aggressive ways to deal with the human, human problems. And for me, I said, man, what does this work? How does this work in my context? And here's what I discovered, that I'm dealing with what I like to call system-affected Muslims. Muslims who've been affected by the educational system as children, the welfare system, their mothers being on welfare, and the criminal justice system as young men. And studies show that when a person experiences a traumatic event in childhood, it creates learning disabilities, it could be a factor in ADHD, Mm -hmm. and so it could make them very difficult for them to retain information. So restorative Islamic theology has three components, accessibility, right? Making the theology and the jurisprudence very stripped down and accessible, almost primordial, right? Um, The second component is representation. So it takes a recalibration of Quranic narratives. So Jesus, for instance, becomes a man of color, an unhoused man of color who's being harassed mm-hmm. by law enforcement. Because what that does is it represents a lot of the system affected Muslim stories. Mary, his mom becomes, she has an entire chapter in Quran called Maryam. She becomes a teenage mom rejected mm-hmm. by her community. Musa becomes a community, Moses becomes a community activist. His mom, Jochebet, becomes a mother of color worried about her black son's lives. So we have to take these stories and recalibrate them for representation. Mm-hmm. And then finally, embodiment. So after access, after you're able to access the information, representation, make it relevant to your context, we want to find ways that you can actually make the Quran real in your life every single day. And mm-hmm. so this is my, um, my doctoral work again.
1: Oh, I love it. Well, I, I can't you. wait till uh, you finish up with your dissertation because I'd love to read thank it you, uh, if, if you'd ever you so be much. willing for thank me to do that. That'd be awesome. All right. Let's let's dive into the prison abolition side of things. Uh, obviously, again, th- this book uh, dives into that. Uh, and, and this is something that I've explored on this podcast quite a bit. I, I definitely also identify as a prison abolitionist. And honestly, it's, you know, outside of the 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 Muslim and Islamic theology that was in, involved in the book. Uh, I, I was most intrigued by prison abolition from that perspective. Um I, again, I, I have explored uh, with different people uh, prison abolition in the podcast, uh, but for those who have not listened to those podcast episodes, how would you maybe explain or describe prison abolition for somebody maybe okay. who has never heard of it before or maybe even is a little alarmed by like abolishing prison yeah. in the world?
0: Yeah. First, I want to thank you for standing in solidarity with with that movement and with that idea. I appreciate you for that, brother. The second thing I'll say is that there's decarceration and there's prison abolition. Mm. The way I understand them, two different things. Decarceration is basically using policy and laws to decarcerate prisons, right? To relook look and to re-examine some of the structural policies that were put in place during the, especially the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. the, criminal Act, the criminal law acts that, 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 that basically created the prison system we have today, which is housing over 2 million people. So that's decarceration, looking at policy and law and, and advocating to politicians to uh, pass bills that change the law that would be more favorable to allowing people to eventually come home who maybe have already served 30, 40 years. Prison abolition is not about abolishing all prisons. No, it's about abolishing the conditions that make prison necessary. Mm. So basically, it is. Focusing on holistic programming, organic programming, again that centers the human being and says, "Why does this person continue to break the community covenant? Right? Why Mm -hmm. is this person consistently demonstrating maladaptive behavior? Let's let's investigate this person's story. What's happening with them? Why are they in pain? Who hurt them? You know, and how has this pain been expressed? That's what prison abolition is." In my in my um, estimation, because I think that what what the mistake is, we think it means like release all criminals, let them run wild because no one deserves to be locked up because the criminal justice system in America is corrupt. No, we do say the criminal justice system in America is biased against black and brown people. Statistics show that. But we do know that prisons are necessary because there are some people who have serious deep seated mental health issues that need to be locked up because they're not even responsible for themselves. But then there are another group of people who have been victimized by policies and decisions that have made their mothers negligent because of the decisions that made them unhoused, the decisions that made them have to be desperate to go out in in the world and do things that they shouldn't have done, which in turn affected the young men, which in turn caused them to leave the house early to make money in desperate ways which in turn caused them to end up in prison. And then when in prison, when they're flushed of all the, the, the drugs and the narcotics and they're flushed and they're able to, re- in retrospect, think about their lives, they say, I was wrong in these, in these things. The, crime, the crimes that my hands were involved in were my fault. But also there are other responsible parties that are being unaddressed. Think about it, when a young man commits a crime, the victim or the victim's family is no not involved at all in Mm. islam there's a restorative justice aspect where if a person commits a crime against another human being that human being or their family is directly involved in what happens to that person but in our country when a person commits the crime they get isolated by the state and the state decides what happens to this person the victim Mm. doesn't get no restoration there's no compensation there's no consideration for this person. That's it. And then when that person comes home from prison, if they get a release date, what do they have to do? They have to pay the state back. So there are people who are my my clients, some of them my dear friends, who have come home from prison, and they are paying the state $50 $50 a week until they get a job. Then when they get a job, they got to pay $200 a, a month, $200 a week, depending on how much they make, to the state. So the family doesn't get any money. So what this has happened is that you've offended the state and now you got to go pay the price based on an arbitrary decision from a judge who doesn't know anything except what's written on paper. So Mm -hmm. what's written on paper creates monsters. And then the judge bases their decision based on how they feel personally and what they're reading on paper. And and, and so the black family has been decimated Mm -hmm. by this kind of corrupt system which has been in place probably the last 50 or 60 years.
1: What's up, People's Theology listeners? I would love for you to support the podcast. There are a few ways you can do that. First, sharing the podcast to others who you think would also enjoy it and find it helpful is a great way to support the podcast. It's like evangelism, but for something actually good. I really think the ideas explored on this podcast matter, and I believe they are worth sharing with others. Second, if you're not totally depraved and use Apple Podcasts like me, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. It might not seem like much, but every rating and review helps the podcast tremendously in a world more predestined by algorithms than by God. Third, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason It's like tithing, but for something actually good. This podcast takes a lot of time and energy to make, so supporting my work through Patreon is a great way to make sure this podcast can continue to be made. With all that said, please enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Yeah, I often think of, you know, whenever I see something, you know, a person committed a crime or whatever, you, you read the news, you know, I often think we have created a system where we, have, we, we can't help but fail each other you know we, we can 't help but not be able to support that person and have created conditions where they would have never been able to do that in the first place or would have never done that in the first place uh, right. and it 's mostly because we have we have failed to have created conditions and systems to allow people to actually thrive uh, and not just simply survive uh, and so it, it, a lot of that you know comes down to the fact that we are we 're creating systems that are making this happen rather than, um, you know, making this kind of crime or these things happen rather than creating systems where people don't even would never even feel the need to do some of the things that they've
0: done. And that's absolutely correct. And I think that what you said is important because when you talk like this to other white people, not all of them, but a lot of them will say, oh, man, you want to coddle criminals and you're just soft on crime and, you know, you have a bleeding heart, you're a bleeding liberal. No, I'm not a liberal. I'm actually more conservative in my principles and my value system. However, I'm a human and I understand that humans, there are many different factors and a person can be interpersonally not racist, right? You can be interpersonally kind to people from another race, but then systemically be participating in all of the things that holds this particular racial group down Mm -hmm. and oppresses them. So I think using the word systems is so important because... The systems that are in place are stacked against black and brown people in ways that are so nuanced and so subtle and so bureaucratic that it's, it's the insidious mask of racism without it, without, you know, by another name, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that when we speak to people, we try to get them to think systemically and not just saying, oh, man, everyone's created equal and they can get a job just like me and they need to work hard. That's a moral monologue that really doesn't hold its own weight.
1: What was your journey into being passionate about prison abolition? It sounded like at some point in your life, you had been in and out of the system. Um, but then obviously now you've worked with, um, you worked as a prison chaplain. I'm curious at what point in your journey did you really get this, this deep passion and this sense of we actually need prison abolition?
0: Well, I'll tell you, there was a, a kid named Abdullah, Abdullah. He was with me. He was off. Of, he was serving a five-year sentence. About 23 years old. He was with me for about a year or two. I'm not exactly sure. Man, let's just say a year, just to be conservative. My best student in the front row of all my counseling and classes, and on theology and jurisprudence and accountability. And when he got released, everyone lined up. All the lifers lined up, gave him a hug, and he said to me, "I'm going to make you proud. You'll see." In six months, he was back in prison. Mm. And I always say I went into the prison as a theologian and came out as a practitioner. So at this time, I was a theologian. I was all about theology, right? And if you believe these 10 things, then you should be good when you come home. But when when I saw him, I was disappointed. His face was gray. He was skinny. So I said, come in my office. I slammed the door and he burst into tears. And he said, like, it was very hard for me. It was hard. And he began to tell me, like, I couldn't get a job because of because of my quarry. I had to. He said I didn't even have a Charlie card. A Charlie card is how you ride the bus, public transportation. You you buy mm-hmm. a Charlie card or you get one for free. You swipe it and go through. He said I couldn't even get a Charlie card to ride public transportation. I ended up sleeping under the freeway, so I decided to steal a car, run red lights, so I could come back here and have a place to eat, stay and a, some food to eat. And that made me think like. Is religious religion really about saving souls? And only, you know, have I been selfish in trying to say, this is how you achieve salvation? Mm-hmm. Have I been selfish when I'm talking to black and brown people who have been affected by these systems in ways that don't allow space for them to be contemplative? You don't have time to be contemplative when you're just trying to find something to eat, literally. Mm-hmm. So I said, maybe I've been selfish and maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's a different reason why I'm, I've been sent to this prison. And so this is when my journey into prison abolition began with Abdullah and him, you know, falling in my arms, crying because he sincerely thought he could make it. But then it wasn't religion, religion that stopped him. It was being Black is what prevented that. The systems that created an environment that creates an identity for him so that he's serving two sentences. He serves mm-hmm. his prison sentence, then he comes home and has to serve another sentence as a Convicted felon, which is an entirely new sentence. So for me, it just felt unfair. And then just seeing young guys come in at 17 years old, getting 60 years for one bad decision, 60 years, life without parole, whatever these things are. So I just feel like, man, like we have to do something with public love. I don't believe in anger at the system. I don't believe in pointing finger at individuals, pointing fingers at individuals. I believe that it has to be done with public love and with patience and with compassion for the human experience, because the person who's shaping these laws and creating these laws has probably been hurt. And the person who's shaping and creating these laws has been shaped in such a way that they believe that it's okay to dehumanize people. They don't even see it as dehumanization. So we have to, if we don't do it with love, then it's impossible to do.
1: I, a number of years ago, or a couple of years ago, talked with a, a a person on this podcast who has actually been on this podcast quite a few times uh, named Reverend Lenny Duncan. And uh, Lenny at one point mentioned something that still sticks with me today. And that is uh, as a Christian, you know, one of the, one of the two greatest commandments that Jesus says is love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And, and Lenny said, if we truly loved our actual neighbors, not just some sort of abstract neighbor that we have in our head, but actually the neighbors that literally live geographically near us If we love them enough to know their story, to know their needs, we would never have to call a cop ever again. Facts. Right. And so that to me is like the sort of Christian reason for me to be passionate about police and prison abolition. I'm Mm. curious for you as a Muslim, like what are, what are maybe those like core theological convictions or what is it about being Muslim for you in particular that has, informed or made you imp- impassioned about prison abolition.
0: Yes, thank you. So we have that same principle. There's a, there's an Islamic Hadith from the Prophet. He says, aleika that your neighbor has a right over you. And the neighbor in Islamic jurisprudence is defined as 40 houses all around you. This is your neighbor. So as you said, <laughs> if we got that. to know one another, then there'd be no crime or, or no, no, at least no reason to call the police that it would be community policing, so to speak. But beyond that, theologically, for me, there's a verse in the Quran uh, where Allah says, uh, He says, um, You have been created for the for the benefit of mankind. He says, uh, mm-hmm. He says, Because you enjoy what is good and you for, forbid what is wrong. What mm-hmm. took and you believe in God. This verse to me says that, and then he says let there arise, let there arise a group for you, enjoying what is good and forbidding what is wrong. So for me, God is laying out, he's laying out the premise. He's saying, number one, you were a group, Muslims are created for the benefit of human beings. And then he says, because you enjoy good and forbid wrong, and you believe in God, right? And I think that this is the, the way he ordered these things, belief in God is last. So that tells us that there's two justice. There's a vertical justice and a horizontal justice. And he's saying that a priority should be placed on horizontal justice, enjoining good and forbidding wrong, right? And when you look at the Quran, there are 6,236 verses. Out of those 6,236, 120 are dealing with jurisprudence, right? How to do things, how to worship. That's 2%. So 2% of the Quran is about how to worship. And then there are 1,500 or so uh, verses about adl, justice, insania, humanity, kist, equity, and equality, akhlaq mm-hmm. and adab, character and morals. So that's 25% of the Quran. And the rest of the Quran are stories of the prophets that reinforce that 25%. <laughs> so what we're looking at is. God telling us, yes, believe in me. Yes, I'm one. Believe in me. But the way this should show up in your life horizontally is enjoining what is good and forbidding what is wrong. (inaudible) You have been raised up to be a benefit for mankind. And so, and then finally you believe in God. So I think that for me, it's looking at this verse and saying, okay, Uh, What am I proximate to? What's, you know, everyone has a struggle. I can't worry about what's going on in this country or that country. I have to deal with what's proximate to me, what I've been familiar with, what I'm Mm learned in, what I feel like I'm an expert in. And for me, system affected people. I was raised around in my whole life. Prison Mm -hmm. fell on my lap as a chaplain. This is my vocation. This is what God wants me to do. And so I'm going to take that verse and edify my life by living it out.
1: I love that. I love that. One of the things that I often think about when it comes to prison abolition is that it's more about creating a new world than destroying an old world, right? A lot of people yeah. think of, hear the word abolition and they immediately think of like destruction, right? But I right. think of prison abolition more about creation. So what is the, the, what, what is the world that you're wanting to create?
0: That's beautiful. So in, in, in Arabic, when I say restorative Islamic theology, in Arabic, this word restore means tejdeed. And Tajdeed means to renew, right? To renew. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're absolutely um, on point when you say it's not about destruction, it's about renewal, renewal, and looking at things from a new lens. The world I'm trying to create is a world by which those who violate the community contract, right, who do something that is antagonistic to other humans or subversive to our well being as a community, they should be taken in and given public love Mm. and what that means is putting them through a very a very uh succinct process that includes emotional psychological and spiritual nurturing that's first and foremost and i think if if that is done to those who violate the community covenant number one you will see a completely turn a complete turnaround that's number one because prison is a place where you learn to be a criminal right Mm -hmm. you learn to be a criminal you commit you you make a mistake and you go to prison you're going to come out a criminal but if you create a holistic environment that changes number two we have to look at our young children beginning in elementary school and began to and begin to teach them how to be inclusive what does the other look like right and what Mm -hmm. are these systems everyone should know who they are on the social strata right they are the mutab. In Islam, there's something that is called the uh, the mutrafun. The mutrafun are like the luxury class, the position class, and then mm-hmm. the mustadaafun, the low class, the the exploited class, and then the muslimun. Those people who are reformers. So you should know what part. I should know if I'm a peasant or I'm a worker. Why my why I'm not getting paid the proper wages? A woman should know why she's being marginalized. Mm-hmm. Everyone in society should understand what that looks like and this is why taking black history out of the curriculum is so crucial not Mm -hmm. to do this is why Mm -hmm. we have to fight against it because what it does is it holds up a mirror to young black kids to say this is what you've been up against so i Mm -hmm. see a world where education is not just banking academic banking and memorization it's nurturing and you can only nurture when you love and love comes from appreciation so i Mm -hmm. see a world where those in charge They can appreciate the black and brown experience and what they've contributed and what they've sacrificed to the american fabric we're the real patriots right we fought in every war we shed blood when there wasn't a war we built up this country we fertilized the earth with our bones we're the real patriots Mm. so i think a world that recognizes and appreciates that and from that comes love and from that love comes nurturing and this is real education
1: one of the things that I would I hear a lot from people that listen to my podcast is, you know, they're like, oh, this you know, the the academic stuff and the full philosophical stuff. This is great. Love it. But they're also the people that listen to my podcast are the kind of people that are like, I really want to, like, go out and do this kind of stuff. Right. Like they actually want practical kind of recommendations. So what are like suggestions, like practical suggestions that you would encourage a listener to this podcast of like, hey, th- this prison abolition stuff sounds great. I want to be involved in it. What are some practical suggestions that you would recommend to say, "Hey, this is how you can get involved in this prison abolition work"?
0: Yeah, I think I think that this is a much longer question because I think it if it, it we're serious about it, right? And I think I, the mistake we all make is we have a, we, a great speaker who's dynamic, not me. I'm just saying we go somewhere and we become inspired by a speaker and we say, "I want to do it." I raise my hand, and then the speaker mm-hmm. says, "Okay, number one, uh, call your local senators. Number two, vote locally. That's good." But if a person is serious, then there has to be a deep evaluation, Mm. a deep evaluation of how much faith do you have? I'm not talking about if you're Muslim or not. How much faith in God do you have, whether you're Christian, Jew, Muslim? First, evaluation of your faith. And then what are you willing to sacrifice and contribute? Everybody wants to contribute. But are are people willing to sacrifice? Because everybody is afraid of losing one of the five. Mm. Right? Everyone fears losing one of the five losing your life, your freedom, your reputation, your family, or your provision. And so when you prepare to say, this issue means so much to me that I'm willing to lose any one of these five, okay, now we can talk about what we need to do. And then in that sphere, what's your vocation? Are you a good researcher? Are you a fundraiser? Are you a good person who can go outside and pick it? We have to know what people are good at. And so it's not simple. You can't give a one-size-fits-all explanation and say, call your local senator none of that is going to be effective for every type of person mm. i think it requires a deep evaluation so what i would recommend is for each person to go to their faith their, their faith clergy leader tell them hey you know me i'm interested in prison abolition where do you see me on this spectrum mm. and let that faith leader with their deep wisdom let them to tell, help them work through this because listen this work is not for the faint-hearted. It's not something mm-hmm. you do easily. And it's not something you can commit to without a deep, deep, deep understanding that God may take your soul because of this fight. He may call you back home. And that's the same for saving the whales or global warming or being concerned about, you know, trash or whatever it is you care about. You can't do it tangentially. You can't just think you're going to do it on the side. It's a, mm-hmm. If we're going to be committed, let's go ahead and get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. So that's my advice. I wouldn't insult anyone by telling them three steps to three steps to prison abolition. Go and talk to your pastor. Go talk to your rabbi. Talk to your imam. Tell them this is what you're interested in and see where God leads them to tell you.
1: What I love about your answer there is it's deep relational work, not just relationship with yourself, but obviously relationship with others, whether it's your clergy person or obviously in your community, but it's deep relational work. And to me, that's what prison abolition is all about. It's Mm. at the end of the day, abolitionism is all about relationship, creating different relationships and and creating renewal of relationships with people. um, and, And you know, sometimes you hear the, the phrase uh, uh, abolition starts at home. Uh, not only does it start at home, but it starts within yourself. You have mm. to have that deep relational work within yourself in order to be able to do the good work of abolition in the world.
0: Mm. And this is important because in Islam, there's a there's a, it's called nafs, Tashkia to Nafs. It's just what you said. Tashkia to Nafs is is having an internal dialogue, an internal confrontation to say. I need to relate. I need to understand myself first. I need to have a conversation with myself, confront my deficits, my challenges, my weaknesses, and then also look at my strengths and see where I belong on this spectrum.
1: Uh, Tay, the tagline of my podcast is exploring inspiring and liberating theology. So, how do you Mm -hmm. hope your book inspires and liberates its readers?
0: Thank you. I hope that it, it inspires them to say that Islam is not a dogmatic religion of war. It's not a religion that oppresses anyone, man, woman, or child. It's not a religion that hates the West or Christianity or Judaism. That's number one. I hope it allows them to explore those aspects. I hope that it inspires them to know that God is always working in everyone's lives and that the worst kind of person is a religious supremacist because a religious supremacist can go in any direction. They can become a racist, a bigot, a killer. They can use policy. So I think that. My book demonstrates that we all can be touched by different people from different walks of life with different worldviews and that the best thing we can do is make space for other people's experiences and in the way they view God. And I hope that they pick the book up and see that, you know, my experience with God was tailor-made for me. And in that, uh, they can find inspiration to look for their their experience as well. Mm, Love that. Love that. Tay, how
1: can listeners get connected to you and your work and where should
0: they get the book? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Well, there's several ways to get the book. You can go to AmericanImamBook.com. That's American Imam. I M A M, not Ns, not n as in like uh, noon time, but M as in mom. ImamBook.com. AmericanImamBook.com. Or you can go to Spentum.com. S P as in Paul. E N as in noon time. T-E-M, as in mom, Spentum.com. That's my uh, uh, system affected network. We have classes we offer. We have cohorts. We have activities. I would love to hear from people. Love that.
1: Love that. Well, Tate, thank you so much for sharing more about your story, your journey in Islam, uh, kind of some of the theologies that have shaped and changed you, and and certainly about your passion around uh, prison abolition. It's just been so wonderful. Uh, And, you know, I I would imagine a lot of people consider you their imam. I would love to consider you my imam uh, if, (laughs) if you would graciously accept that. But thank you so much for chatting more about the book.
0: Oh, my pleasure. I really want to thank you for honoring me with this platform this honorable platform in a world that's so full of depravity at this point i think it's better off with faithful people so i really really appreciate the effort you're making you're, you're a real warrior for god god bless you brother
1: you can get connected with tay and his work in the links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.